Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast exploring the latest thinking and key issues for those leading or aspiring to lead. And I'm Tom Gosling, an Executive Fellow in the Department of Finance and part of the Leadership Institute here at London Business School. And I'm delighted to be joined today by David Jackson, former Company Secretary of BP from 2003 to 2019. And in this episode, we'll be discussing how board duties and investor preferences interact on ESG issues using the particular example of oil and gas companies. So, David, it's absolutely great to have you here. Um, Could you perhaps give our listeners a brief pen picture of your career and and what you're up to now? Tom, it's it's lovely to be here and great to be able to talk. Uh, Yes, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I qualified in private practice. Uh, but very rapidly moved into industry, and I have worked for a number of different companies, I think it was since uh, 1977. Um, I ended up uh, becoming a general counsel of a company called PowerGen, which was one of the companies that came out of the uh, privatisations by government in the early 1990s. There I was general counsel and company secretary, and I stayed with them until 2002. I had a very broad role uh, looking after all of the legal function and was very much a generalist lawyer. Uh, we sold the company in 2002 and I became the company secretary of BP. Uh, I did a year as a special counsel before taking on the role in 2003. And there I worked uh, for two chairs, uh, Peter Sutherland and Carl Henrik Svanberg. And BP's governance is somewhat unique, if you can have somewhat unique, uh, in that the company secretary's team works directly to the the chairman. And so I was there basically running the chairman's office and I suppose really being the board's presence in the company 365 days in the year. So I looked after the, the board, the committees, and made sure that the board's initiation rights to make sure that what the board wanted to discuss uh, were fully respected by management. And since and during that time, I've also been involved with GC100. Uh, and um, I've since retiring or since stopping paid work, uh, I've been involved in a number of other organisations, hybrid organisations such as clubs, livery companies and schools, where I've been involved in the governance of those as well. Great. And I think you've got terrific insights to bring to this conversation today because, I mean, really, we see um, oil and gas companies really being in the eye of the storm when it comes to this issue of climate change. Because on the one hand, um, in all, if we're going to hit a goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 centigrade, that demands radical cuts in fossil fuel usage, which leads to pressure from some civil society groups and some investors to cut output and, and transition more rapidly to renewable energies. But on the other hand, the reality of continued oil and gas demand and governments wanting energy security at low costs and investors not wanting to forego returns leads to pressure to, to continue output. And there's been quite a lot of debate about a discussion of the sort of fiduciary duties of investors in in this whole area. But what's interested me is that whilst fiduciary duties of investors are quite tightly linked in most jurisdictions to maximising financial returns, boards of directors actually have a lot of latitude about how they they act on a number of these uh, issues. So today we are going to explore how boards view their fiduciary and ethical duties, particularly in the context of global warming. 
And I should say up front um, that although we will talk uh, from time to time about what's happening at BP, David's uh, your former uh, employer, because it is an interesting case study, uh, it's worth saying that David has no privileged information on the discussions that have taken place in the board since he left in um, 2018, which was 18 months before the current CEO uh, took the helm. So we will be simply discussing information on recent events uh, that's in the public domain. So um, I'd like to start with the question of strategy development, David, and the role of the board, because we have examples of oil and gas companies and energy companies that have taken very different points on a spectrum from Exxon, which is conventionally viewed as being the most attached to continued oil and gas production through to, at the other extreme, you know, Orsted, which over the last decade and a half has pivoted from being a fossil fuel company to predominantly a renewable energy company, and we have a whole spectrum in between. Um, so what is it that um, a board considers and, and how do they go about the process of developing strategy uh, and determining where they sit on that spectrum? The, bo the board needs to start from the point of view of where its legal obligations are. And you've mentioned legal obligations as regards investors. And I think it's, it might be worthwhile to try and frame our conversation over the next few minutes, just as, to set this in context, because the director's duties, and they are the duties of indi individual directors, uh, the board is not a concept in English law. Uh, the, the, the board is made up of directors and they each have their own individual duties. These are set out in the Companies Act from 2006, uh, the sum total of which means that the directors of a company uh, have to uh, aim to run the company to make sure that it's a, uh, a successful company for the benefit of the members as a whole. And the members are the investors. And it's all the group of investors, not just one group. But in doing so, they need to have regard to a number of things, such as the long-term issues, the company's reputation, the, the position of employees, the communities they get involved in, uh, the environment and various other issues. And of course, also, uh, the, 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 as I said, I think the, the reputation of the company. So when it comes to strategy, it's very much a balancing act. The the, the directors need to consider um, what the strategic direction of the company is, what the direction of travel is, and then consider with the management how best to achieve that direction of travel. Mm -hmm. And that's done in a very much an iterative process. And what is the role of the management team versus the board in determining that strategic direction? As I said, it's an iterative process, and one needs to look at it over different time horizons. Um, the, the board will be looking over a time horizon of 10, 20 years, because they, their obligation is to make sure that the company is, is a success over that time. The, the executive team can change. I mean, chief executives nowadays probably will serve for five or six years. It's rare to be more, but there can be more. So a chairman can quite often see two or maybe three chief executives during a chairman's term of 10 or so years. And so the, there are often time issues about the, 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 the period which the management are looking at compared to what the board's looking at. But at the end of the day, what's really happening 
is that the board is saying to them to the management this is the way we want to take the company these are the circumstances within which we're operating what's your best view as to how the company should go forward over the next four five six seven or whatever years to achieve that goal so it's very much an iterative process and it's a collaborative process the management must be involved in it because they have to own it. Mm. There's nothing worse than a board saying this is the strategy and then giving it to an executive team and saying deliver that. No, they must own it. Once determined and agreed, it's important to also reflect on the fact that the it's the executive that creates the strategy and that the board then approves it. And it's accepted after being challenged by the board. And one of the major roles of the board, of course, is to check on the implementation of that strategy and ensure that there's the, the performance of the company is in accordance with that strategy. One of the other parts of the process will be looking at the whole question of risk because in determining the strategy, uh, one has to consider what risks are likely to be to that strategy being implemented. And therefore, risk mitigation uh, measures will need to be put in place so that um, the strategy can be achieved. But if those m risk mitigation measures aren't working, that could result in the strategy being changed or um, modified in some way. As I mentioned earlier, we have seen energy companies take very different positions on this spectrum about how far to continue on oil and gas and how quickly to move away. And we've seen the European energy companies in particular come under pressure from both sides, actually. I mean, one side who thinks they're not transitioning quick enough and another side that maybe think they're leaving too much money on the table by moving out of, of oil and gas. And so a board that is determining kind of where to sit on that spectrum, you've described that there's a whole range of factors that they might be taking into account. But will they be fundamentally looking primarily at what they believe will create the maximum shareholder value in, in the decisions they're taking? Or actually, do boards take into account a much wider set of factors when thinking about what success of the company means over the long term? They will be taking a, a broad set of factors into account because one of the major changes that I think has occurred over the last 10, 15, 20 years since the, the legislation was brought into place is the spread of uh, reputational issues that can affect companies far more rapidly than perhaps they used to 20 or so years ago. We see uh, instant media, we see all the various uh, 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 channels that are open. And we see, I think, in some ways, politicians who are more ready to step in. I think what, when I say step in, it, it, it's an interesting reflection to my mind now that if ever there seems to be some sort of a an issue or a crisis, and the word crisis gets used very frequently in the UK these days, perhaps more frequently than it should do, but it gets used. Uh, one of the immediate reactions is for a select committee to call people in front of it. Mm. Mm. And in some ways, what's happening is that the, the, the law 
and the duties of directors set out a way of considered justice through the courts. Whereas now, because of the uh, the, the, the issues I've mentioned, mm. one has to think about the, the summary justice of the court of public opinion. Mm. Mm. And no company is immune from that. Mm. Um, and therefore, again, it's part of the balancing mm. that has to go on in thinking about these as reputational issues. One of the requirements under the um, under the Companies Act uh, in the UK is, um, you know, although the primary duty of directors is to um, uh, manage the company for the benefit of, of, of shareholders over the long term, uh, is also to have regard to various constituencies. And, and one of those constituencies is, is the environment, have regard to the impact of the company on the environment. How would directors think about that in a context of um, a business where where the product, hydrocarbons, actually has a direct detrimental environmental impact through through global warming. How, how do they think about taking that into account within the context of the broader duty to run the company for the benefit of members as a whole? At the moment, we're looking at the whole question of, of climate change through emissions. But um, if one thinks about oil spills, uh, if one thinks about... Uh, methane coming out of pipelines and things of that nature you know the 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 environment has has always been a major consideration for companies and and I do know that the, you know those whole areas are closely monitored by companies because they are of such importance to the business and to the reputation of the business there are certain products which have a greater effect on the environment than others and I certainly uh from my experience, there was a feeling, well, you move from coal, uh, move people on from coal to gas. You're certainly not using oil for power generation or things like that, but you try and get to gas, and then at the same time, you move on to renewables. That was a pathway through. And I think the the, the boards of directors would look at the environmental effects of those different uh, uh, ways of using the product and try and use that as their way of reflecting the society's concerns on those on, on those products. Um, you know, at, at some stage, if we can, we can live in a world uh, where we don't need oil and, uh, oil and gas. Uh, but, you know, you, you look at any of the different forecasts and that way is certainly a few years off at the moment. I want to pick up on a, a couple of final points around directors' duties that and, and how they fit with um, expectations that some civil society groups have of, um, uh, of, of oil and gas companies. And one of them is this idea that actually um, oil and gas companies should um, effectively just go into, into runoff. They should, um, uh, they should scale down production. They should return cash to shareholders. Shareholders can go and invest that elsewhere in renewable energy projects and then they should effectively just uh, sort of run themselves out of business over a 20-year time horizon, say, to pick a number out of the air. How does this fit with sort of directors' duties to uh, to ensure the success of the company over the long term? I mean, is there an expectation that actually directors will find a continuing purpose for the company? And, And I mean, how easy is that sort of runoff strategy how easy would it be for a board to adopt that uh, i think directors will always try and find a, a way of making sure their company is successful uh, 
we're we're not looking here at companies where the technology changed fundamentally. In those companies where the technology did change, sometimes the directors were criticised for not keeping abreast with evolutions in technology and and transitioning from one to the other. Mm. Now, sometimes the investors play a bit of a role in this because investors can sometimes say, well, look, actually, we invested in you in a company doing X, Y, Z. You're now trying to transition into a company doing A, B, and C. Actually, if we want to go and invest in a company doing A, B, and C, we'll go to another company whose core business it is Mm -hmm. rather than a business that you're trying to move into. Uh, And I think you see a little bit of that in the the oil and gas uh, investors at times. And I think this is part of the reason why um, these the, the move from oil and gas companies into integrated companies is an interesting path as far as the investor is concerned. But from the point of view of the directors, I believe that if they believe they've got the skills and they can create a company with the right skills, then um, they should they should pursue that and uh, but there are challenges around this as well um in in some ways one of the things that oil and gas companies can do is actually huge engineering projects at scale mm. and what the transition's going to need if you go into things like carbon capture and storage or whatever is is projects at scale uh you then have another potential issue that society will say, well, actually, these companies created the problem and made money out of it. We can't allow them now to change their spots and go and solve the problem mm. and make money out of it again. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, that, I think, is, a, is, is an issue that one's going to have to wrestle with. I don't know the answer to mm. that one. But you can see those, those yeah. thoughts being there. But from the company's point of view, you've got those skills, those, mm. because other companies won't have it. So, I mean, we we should be sort of realistic about the fact that actually from the director's point of view, they're always, you know, all else being equal, they're going to favour a strategy that ensures the continuation of the company in some form over one that, 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 that does not. And, 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 and indeed, they, 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 uh, they could be held to task by the shareholders if they don't. Yeah. Um, the other argument that is sometimes made is that... Um, investors a certain group of investors um, adopt this sort of universal owner approach where they say well we own the whole market um, climate change is damaging for the whole market uh, and therefore um, we would like um, our oil companies in our portfolio you know to cut production even if it might not be financially optimal for them it might um, you know uh, 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 constrain global warming and therefore benefit the rest of our portfolio and let's just sort of set aside for the moment whether that would actually work as a strategy um from the point of view of the directors of the oil company um what's their position legally if they are doing something that damages that company for the benefit of shareholders other shareholdings can that be interpreted as running the company for the benefit of members as a whole or or, or would that actually 
prove difficult? I think it would be proved difficult because you've got to look at members as a whole. I, I find it difficult to how you'd actually get all your US shareholders and your UK shareholders mm. to come together in that in that way to direct the company in that Well, let's suppose they did. I mean, let, let's just sort of suspend um, <laughs> well, well, disbelief that, yeah, well, OK, well, if you want to suspend disbelief, then, you know, if... I, I suppose at the end of the day, if they all if they passed a resolution mm. at an AGM, c- clearly directing the the company that that's the way they wanted to go, then then the shareholders have done that. They have the right to appoint the directors, to fire the directors, mm. and to raise resolutions if they want to. But the directors at that point would presumably still have to be satisfied that they were still um, acting. Uh, for the benefit of the, the members as a whole, I suppose your point well, they is would that be, they so would the, be because they've had a direct. They've had resolution. a direction to do so. Yeah. Okay. But you would have to get to quite a direct. I think you'd have point, to get to that point. Yes. Um, before before they could do it. Yeah, I see. That's because at the end of the day, you know, the 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 the, the, the shareholders have delegated to the directors the governance of the company, mm. and if they take decisions, which which which, are, which which they believe are in the reasonable range of responses for directors to take for the success of the company, it's going to be difficult for someone to sort of challenge that at the end of the day. So in this section so far, we've sort of talked about um, directors' duties and the, and, and the role of the board. And, and what's clear is that there are some realities about the duties that directors have to run companies for the benefit of members as a whole um, that sometimes conflict with what certain aspects of civil society would want those boards of directors um, to do. You've mentioned that actually within the zone of latitude that they have, directors do take account of the evolving sentiment of society. Um, but where does this kind of go in, in, in your view? Are we approaching the limits of, of what directors can do within the scope of the law as it's currently defined? And, and would there need to be changes to the law if they were going to go much further around being kind of active proponents of, of, of climate friendly action? I, I'm, I've been comfortable with this law for some time, and I, I still believe it has the the amount of flexibility that's needed to be able to allow companies to to flourish, and for companies to have regard to the environment and the challenges of climate change. Uh, one of the issues about changing the law is that at the moment you have the directors are accountable, responsible to one group. As soon as you start making them responsible more broadly, how do you choose which group stands out amongst the rest? And that's the real challenge. That was always the the issue. If you go back to 2000, when the company law review was around, why didn't we go down a stakeholder route then? And it was because, in legal terms, how you enforce it and, and, and how directors legally have to choose between different people to whom they owe legal responsibilities uh, would could be very, very difficult. So 
in any form of delegation, you really want delegation to a, a single point or to a single group. And that, that's what we've got at the moment. What, we're, what we are seeing, though, is that society, through government and regulators, is now seeking greater transparency about how directors take these issues into account, how these matters are taken into account, and they have to report on them. For the very fact you have to do that will inevitably mean that people focus on mm. those th those matters. I I'm a firm believer in sticking with the regime we've got at the moment. I don't think it needs changing. Uh, I think it's important that there is good disclosure around it and that companies are, as I've said, encouraged to show their working in the way in which they've done it. Um, un unfortunately, I think it's a reality that some people will never be satisfied by that. Um, and at the end of the day, if, uh, if, 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 if the shareholders um, are unhappy with the way the company's being, being run... They can always change the directors. So I think that leads us very naturally into the second part of the discussion, which is the role of shareholders and how shareholders influence this, this whole debate. And we've seen some very live examples of shareholders seeking to influence what oil and gas companies do. Uh, and the main mechanisms we've seen are um, engagement through uh, organisations like Climate Action um, 100+. We've also seen all of the oil majors... Uh, have shareholder resolutions filed around setting scope three uh, emissions targets. And we've also seen um, a case of um, a, an attempt to bring a, a, a derivative shareholder action um, against Shell uh, here in the UK. And I'd like to just sort of discuss the role of shareholders and how boards react to that. But let's start with yeah, perhaps the, the longer standing one, which is around engagement. And engagement's been around for a long time. So um, how does engagement affect the way that boards um, think about strategy? Have you seen the emergence of organisations like Climate Action 100 Plus who have been um, engaging in a coordinated way um, specifically on the issue of climate? Do you think that has changed how... Kind of European or energy companies in particular choose to approach the question of climate change? If we talk about the environment and, and AGMs and resolutions, mm. we're talking about climate now. But th there's, a, there's a long tradition of climate-type resolutions being brought to AGMs. I mean, the first year when I was at BP in 2002... Um, there was a resolution about drilling in the uh, in, in the Arctic up mm -hmm. in Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, we had another resolution around whether we should go into the oil sands in uh, in Canada. These th th those resolutions were often brought by U.S. based shareholders um rather than uk shareholders what has changed is that uk shareholders are now more organized on some of these issues and indeed when i was when i was at bp we worked with uh the shareholders on resolutions mm. uh, and i think we one of the we were one of the first companies to actually sit down 
with the shareholders and agree the wording of the resolution they wanted to bring mm. so that we could recommend the resolution that they brought to the AGM rather than mm. uh, advising people to vote against it. Um, and this this dialogue is 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 important, and uh, and again, it's it's for the company and the shareholders to work out the wording of these resolutions. And if the company can accept it, that's all well and good. But as we've seen, perhaps over the last few weeks, perhaps there hasn't been the same uh, the dialogue hasn't reached the, the same level where the company felt that they could um, uh, accept the resolution. But these groups are there, and they're and mm. and, and, they're, and they are influential. On this on this question of of, of resolutions, um, you mentioned what we've seen in the last few weeks, and we, we've had a uh, a pretty consistent resolution put in front of all of the oil majors. Um, essentially, a request to set scope three targets that are aligned with the, the Paris goal of um, below two and as close as possible to one point five degrees, and. Um, We've seen some quite different reactions to that from different investor bases. So uh, Exxon and Chevron in the US had about 10% investor support for that resolution. Um, I mean, none of the boards recommended these resolutions, I should say. Shell and BP had about 20%, and, um, and then Total Energies had about um, 30%. But if we take, I mean, I think BP is quite an interesting case because there were two things happened at the same time. So we had the, the slight... Um, lengthening of um, the timescales over which oil and gas assets were going to be exploited at, at, at BP and therefore a a scaling back of the reduction in, in production that had previously been um, outlined by the company. That both seemed to result in a, in a share price uplift of 10 to 15 percent so that's one set of investors voting that way but on the other hand resulted in this 20 percent vote against from another group of investors so again how does the board integrate those different bits of information that on the face of it appear to be conflicting from their shareholder base well i think uh to go back to what bp said it's it's and not all hmm. and i think uh, Obviously, as I said earlier, I've got no uh, inside information about this, but I would have thought that, certainly from past practice, that if if there could have been an accommodation on the wording of a resolution, the board would have wanted to adopt that. As I've said earlier on, uh, issues around reputation and a desire to demonstrate that these matters are taken seriously are important matters to a board. So if there was a resolution they could support, I'm sure they would have done. The other side of it, though, is if the resolution is not clear, um, if it's defective in any way, or if it is uh, is overreaching in terms of how it would have to be monitored, then then I think it's fair for the directors to say, look, you know, we we believe we're running the company in an appropriate fashion, in discharge of our duties. Um, we hear what you say, but we're going to carry on mm. doing it the way we're doing it because we believe we are addressing, I think, for example, here, scope three in a way that's acceptable mm. to the majority of our shareholders. But it's also fair to say one of the reasons why um, shareholder resolutions are discussed with those requisitioning them mm. 
Uh, and this goes back to the very early days that the legis again, this all comes back to legislation a lot of it. Mm. These are rights that are there in law. Mm -hmm. And it's important that for the directors to make sure that if they're accepting a resolution, that they're accepting something that meets the requirements of the Companies Act. Uh, and in fact, certainly when I was involved in these back in 2002 and subsequently, we would actually want to work with the requisitioners to try and make sure we were clear what, 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 the, what the resolution was about. Mm. We didn't want to be able to say, actually, well, we're, we think it's so vague that we just strike it out. Mm. Um, and because that, that itself can bring its own reputational Mm. Uh, uh, risk if you're sort of denying the rights, what are seen as the rights of the shareholders. But at the end of the day, if it is defective and it doesn't work and it can't be implemented, then it's not for the for, for the directors to try and accept it and to recommend against it. You know, it's um, mm. it's pretty clear, I'm afraid. And it goes back, I guess, to what you were saying earlier about um, the fundamental duty being to run the company for the benefit of shareholders as a whole. And I guess the board has to make a judgment uh, uh, about that. And 20% of shareholders doesn't necessarily reflect the benefit of shareholders as a, as a whole. And um, I'd, I'd like to just build on that by coming to another channel that's been used recently, which is the legal route. And we've had an interesting case in the UK with Client Earth bringing a um, derivative shareholder action against um, Shell. Um, claiming that it's not fulfilled its duties in relation to climate. Um, I mean, what's your perspective on that? And, and, and do you think the legal route against directors is one that, that could be fruitful for climate campaigners? Or, or, or how do you think that's going to fare under the UK legislation? Well, the legislation was put in place again back in 2006. Mm. Uh, part of the 2006 legislation was that derivative actions would be allowed against directors because in the past or before the 2006 act that, that they weren't that they were barred and this effectively means a shareholder can sort of put themselves in the shoes of the company, company to and, sue the directors exactly. for breach of their duties against the company yes. and and they're very prevalent in the US mm. this this these provisions were put into the act and actually because people were concerned then about the uh uh, an abuse of the derivative action procedures, the two-stage process that the climate, the client Earth people went through with Shell was put in place. And basically, you, to, to bring up a shareholder action, a derivative action, you have to show, a, firstly, show a prima facie case to a judge. And if the judge thinks there's a prima facie case, then the matter can go for a full hearing where the company gets involved in wanting to um, to defend the litigation. Uh, the, the idea being that if there were lots of cases brought, the, the company wouldn't have to spend time basically dealing with frivolous matters. That was why this prima facie uh, first step was put in place. Now, in this current case, uh, what, what, what I think was interesting about it was that um, that the, the, the defendants actually put in some evidence of their own at the prima facie level, which uh, clearly um, had some impact. Uh, I think we must say straight out of the box as well 
that this was a, a, a high court hearing. It was done on on the papers, and the the, the judgment there um, has been made. But uh, it was it was open to client Earth to go for an oral hearing, and I believe that they've said that they will go for an oral hearing. So we may have only just seen the um, seen the first first cut of all of this. Uh, but what I thought was interesting was that uh, the the judge very much reflected or thought about the, the requirements that the that client Earth were trying to put on Shell in terms of their... Uh, the judge saw it as expanding the, the duties of directors uh, in ways that were set out by client Earth. And basically, the judge said, look, it's these are big, complex organisations. A number of things have to be balanced. Unless what the directors doing, are doing falls outside a range of reasonable responses, then um, it's not for the courts to, to intervene. And this is really a, a, a formulation of what the, is known in America as the business judgment rule. At least that's how I've understood it um, from, from the, the, the reports I've been reading. Um, and 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 I think the the the, the, the also the, the judge was was influenced by the fact that Climate Earth had twenty seven shares, mm. that they were a small shareholder, and that I think there was a feeling that the judge didn't feel the court should be used for this type of litigation um, by by relatively small shareholders. They were also persuaded, and I know you mentioned earlier on uh, that the, 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 the defendants in in their in, uh, had received only eighty percent support for their uh, transition strategy this year. Well, they'd received eighty percent in the two previous mm. years as well. And uh, as I understand it, and I believe that the judge actually looked at that and said, "Well, that's an indication that the majority of the shareholders." Actually, we're happy with this, and indeed, that goes to one of the that goes to the second limb of the procedure under the particular uh, section in the Act, because if you if the judge had decided that there was a prima facie case and it had gone to a hearing, one of the things that would be taken into account was well, what did the rest of the shareholders think about all of this? Um, because because you know we're, we're back to this whole concept of running the business for the shareholders as a whole, mm, mm. and therefore the need to look at the whole body of shareholders. Apparently, the judge noted that uh, eighty percent of the shareholders had supported mm. uh, the defendant's position, and therefore was concerned that even if a prima facie had been case had been made, it would fail at the next stage. Mm. Because the, the the majority of the shareholders were comfortable with the way in which the directors were exercising their duties, so a lot of this comes back to this core sort of tenet of the UK legislation, which is that the company is run for the benefit of shareholders as a whole. So people who are, are wanting directors to kind of radically change direction have to acknowledge that under UK law, the directors have to be satisfied that that is indeed broadly what the shareholders want so even though directors have a wide sort of zone of discretion they have to in good faith uh, act in act in that way 
Well, well they do. I, I think, again, this is characterised as um, purely driven by shareholder value. Mm. And it's driven by, I think, people saying it's short-term shareholder mm. value. I still come back to the point that the the the, the 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 requirements are there to have this enlightened approach to shareholder value. Mm. So it's not a case of just shutting your ears to everything and going rampantly for the benefit of the shells. You've got to do it in a way that you take in regard and have regard or have account to the broader interests of the society with mm. which you're operating. And frankly, that's common sense. Mm. Um, people use the phrase licence to operate. Mm. Um, and, and in some ways, that's what society gives you through the reputational issues. Mm. You have your legal licence to operate, but you have this broader societal licence. And, you know, as, as, as we've discussed a little earlier on, you know, the, 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 the people now have many different views on this. There are different channels by which these views can now be expressed. Mm. And therefore, it becomes a more complex uh, question for boards to, to deal with the balance on this. But that's what they still have to do. And I, mm. I think if you talk to most chief executives, you know, the, 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 they would say to you, look, you know, you've got to live in the, in the real world. And of of course, we've got to take these sort of things into account, and we've and and and, and, and there will be different pressures in different communities in which we operate. Mm. If you go back to what I mentioned, the oil sands, uh, uh, all those years ago, um, you know, the, the the government of the state of Alberta had clearly said that in the interests of the state of Alberta, they wanted the oil sands exploited. They gave licenses to it. They had environmental permits. It, the whole thing was regulated. Now, the, the First Nations were concerned about this, and they raised a number of issues. But their issue, in some ways, was with their government rather than with the company. Mm. Now, I, I know it's easy for me to say that, mm. but that's really the way it is, because th it was the government who set the regulation. The government encouraged the investment, mm. and that plays out all over the world. And that's where these different balances have to be struck in, in different jurisdictions. So how would you respond then to the argument that actually there comes a point where you know, this isn't just about directors' duties uh, according to the law, but there are just ethical considerations here that, you know, um, uh, exploitation of oil and gas reserves, the burning of hydrocarbons is, is heading humanity on an unsustainable path and board directors just need to take an ethical position on this in how they make decisions that should um, override some of these considerations of, of shareholder value. I mean, how do, how do boards take that ethical dimension into account in a, an area where there are both benefits but also problems from burning hydrocarbons? As I said really early on, uh, directors owe these duties individually to the company. It's their individual obligation to make the company a success. And 
I think they have to be comfortable in their own consciences as to whether they want to be a director of a company in that business. If they uh, have the, the clear ethical concerns that you raise, I think they'd find it difficult to be a director of that company. Mm. I think that people who, who, who are asked to become directors of companies um, often often want to consider the what the company is. They do their own due diligence about what its reputation is like. They do their own due diligence on what the products are. And they need to be comfortable with the extent to which when there are concerns of uh, uh, potential concerns of an ethical nature, that they believe the company has the right approach to address those concerns. Mm. So that would come back to what the purpose of the company is in the context of the energy transition and where it sits on that spectrum. And in a way, there's a sort of a selection process whereby the director would only act for a company where they felt aligned. I, I would hope purpose. so. I would hope so. Uh, yeah. That's certainly the way I would, I would look at it. Um, thank you, David. That was a great discussion. Thank you very much, Tom. I enjoyed it. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Leadership Playbook, uh, brought to you by Think at London Business School. Uh, you can follow us here for more episodes or find us on iTunes or Spotify. Um, for more faculty research insights, um, please do go to london.edu forward slash think. And you can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get updates on our latest publications direct your inbox. And finally, please don't forget to leave us a review or rating, which helps new listeners to find us. Thank you.